This video is brought to you by Devout Decals, makers of reusable Catholic art for your home altar, your bedroom, and your home classroom. We're beginning to see a fascinating internal battle in the mainstream church between Francis and his Bergoglian hypermodernists on one side and the conservative Novus Ordo faction of bishops. These are the better bishops, like Cardinal Mueller and others who often quote the documents of Vatican II and preach a hermeneutic of continuity while still preaching also something approaching Catholic orthodoxy most of the time. This battle isn't over the still unanswered and never will be answered dubia, nor is it over Francis's elevation of wicked men to the College of Cardinals, such as Cardinal McElroy of San Diego. No, this battle is over Francis's new restructuring of the Roman Curia itself, a project of his that had been ongoing for the entirety of his alleged papacy. And more and more observers are noting this document is centralizing power in the hands of the Pope that actually violates Vatican II and tradition at the same time. Francis is getting pushback, but the reforms have already gone into effect, so the pushback may be too little too late. Still, this is a battle for the heart and soul of the government of the universal church, and it speaks to a larger battle going on in the church in our time. But first, I wanted to thank the patrons and channel members of their support of Return to Tradition for like a buck a month. They keep this work going. And it's greatly appreciated their support. And they get early access to weekend material, the occasional bonus material exclusive to patrons, including links to things I do offline, like some radio appearances and the like, like I had recently. If you want to join in helping out, there are links in the description box below. Your help is greatly appreciated. And enough of that, though. Let's get to our story. And when talking about this Vatican II violating reform, let's start with reminding ourselves of Francis's actual position on Vatican II, or at least his stated position. That the traditional movement is bad, according to him, because it rejects or questions Vatican II and its various reforms. We are to be loyal to Vatican II, which numerous commentators have noted is at the heart of Traditionis Custodis and other so-called reform documents of the past few years. I have noted elsewhere that Traditionus Custodis includes a de facto loyalty oath that traditional priests must take affirming Vatican II and its liturgical reforms. Keep that in mind that as Francis verbally calls for loyalty to that council, which Paul VI said made no infallible claims and was pastoral in nature and thus could be functionally ignored by the laity because, as some are noting, Francis's latest reform of the Curia is actually ignoring Central values of Vatican II itself, especially relating to government of the church. From a website called mondayvatican.com, a very much a pro-Vatican II website, we get this headline, Pope Francis and the Paradox of the Council. In trying to reform the council in his own image and likeness, Francis is actually scrapping much of the reforms the council forced upon the church that changed the relationship between bishops and the pope. From the article, quote, Curia reform wanted by Pope Francis, but above all, the philosophy behind it probably brought a consequence that was not foreseen. Starting from the principles identifiable in the Predicate Evangelium, the whole Second Vatican Council can be questioned. And this is paradoxical since Pope Francis wants to be the Pope who puts the Council into practice. The question revolves around a central theme in the Cardinal's discussions, the responsibility of the laity. According to Predicate Evangelium's constitution, everyone, even the laity, can receive government posts in the Vatican because they receive power directly from the Pope. It is therefore a vicarial power, not a power given by the sacred order they receive. End quote. 
in plain language, Francis is implementing a top-down so-called reform. And it's not surprising, even if it's hypocritical at a time when he preaches the need to listen and dialogue with the bishops and the need for a synodal church in our time. A church run by the laity, of course. That's what he wants. And it's a disastrous suggestion. But what most aren't understanding is that this really does undermine the relationship between the bishops and the papacy, as well as opening the curia to total manipulation by a pontiff skilled in manipulation. Of course, not all the bishops and cardinals see this reform as bad. That's to be expected. And it's caused quite a debate among themselves, though. His loyalists are defending this. Quote, it is a hot issue, and it was immediately the subject of extensive debate. Bishop Marco Molino, secretary of the Council of Cardinals, in an article circulated to all the members of the College of Cardinals in preparation for the consistory, explained that this definition does not go against canon law as it was reformed after the Second Vatican Council. For Bishop Molino, the fact that the laity can cooperate in government means that they can take part in the government that the bishops take part in by vocation. This interpretation is widely contested. Before the consistory, interventions on the subject by Cardinals Antonio Ruco, Varela, Mark Ouellette, and even Walter Casper had been disseminated. Everyone questioned that this decision to centralize everything in the hands of the Pope ultimately, even the distribution of power, was in the spirit of the Second Vatican Council. Even the historian Alberto Maloney had denounced the anti-conciliar turn of Pope Francis, who instead of delegating, increasingly centers his powers on himself. There it is. Suppose the canonical mission is the one that gives the power of government. In that case, the power comes only from the Pope, with all due respect to the potestastas gubernandi provided by the Holy Order, and the fact that the Order makes all bishops equal in dignity with the same powers, with the same fullness of powers. It is no coincidence that many of the interventions during the consistory prepared and then not delivered because there was no real moment in which it was possible for all to gather went precisely in this direction, end quote. Remember my video on Cardinal Walter Brandmuller? That was his big critique, and he is not on the same side as most of the people you've just heard here. Now, that article was written from a very, very pro-Vatican II perspective, and that perspective is actually important here for one reason. Francis really has begun to alienate those with a strict pro-Vatican II perspective across the ideological spectrum. It's really remarkable to watch. There is perhaps no better example of this than Cardinal Mueller, who wrote a scathing indictment of Francis's reform document that was published in cath.net, a German outlet that is reasonably orthodox most of the time. Mueller, for all his good defenses of the faith, faith against the German bishops and their weird synodal way, is a pro-Vatican II reform of the reform bishop himself, and he is obviously incensed at Francis's undermining of the authority of the bishops and the council itself. His letter is worth hearing or reading in full. It can get a little complicated because he does use a lot of Latin here, but the letter here follows with some commentary after. It is no progress in ecclesiology, but a blatant contradiction of its basic principles. If all jurisdiction in the church is deduced from the jurisdictional primacy of the Pope, even the great verbiage of service, synodality, and subsidiarity cannot hide the reversion to a theocratic conception of the papacy. These ideals should not only be handed down to others as desiderata, but should be demonstrated daily in exemplary dealings 
with one's own co-workers, especially priests. One must be absolutely clear about the fundamental difference between the ecclesiastical authority of the Pope as the successor of Christ and his political secular functions as the sovereign of the Vatican State or the Holy See as a subject of international law. All ecclesiastical jurisdiction is apostolic sacramental in nature and related to the salvation of souls, as distinguished from the political juridical nature of the exercise of power in a state, including in the Vatican State. Peter acts in the authority of Christ as his vicar, his authority to bind and loose is not a sharing in the omnipotence of God, for he did not say to him, all authority has been given to you in heaven and on earth. See Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. The apostolic authority of the Pope and the bishops is not of their own right, but only of a conferred spiritual authority to serve the salvation of souls through the proclamation of the gospel, the sacramental mediation of grace, and the pastoral guidance of the pilgrim people of God towards the goal of eternal life. Since Peter confessed Jesus as the Son of the living God on the basis of the revelation of the Father, Christ gave him the promise, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. See Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. A church totally fixed on the Pope was and always is the caricature of the Catholic doctrine of the institution, duration, power, and meaning of the sacred primacy belonging to the Bishop of Rome. See Lumen Gentium, paragraph 18. With this conception, any ecumenism with the Orthodox and Protestants is doomed from the start. Vatican II renounced the classical separation of potestas ordinis and jurisdictionis, which is supposed to establish a total papal jurisdiction because of its inadequacy. Already according to Thomas Aquinas, potestas ordinis does not mean merely the authority to administer sacraments. Rather, potestas ordinance means that in ordination all powers are conferred, even though the pastoral office may be limited in its concrete jurisdiction. See Summa Theologica, section 2, question 2. Thus, there are not two equivalent categories of potestas ecclesiastica, but only the one potestas ordinance, of which the potestas jurisdictionis forms an integral but subordinate part. Also, the separation of the Bishop of Rome with his potestas ordinance for, for his diocese from the potestas jurisdictionis of the Pope as successor of Peter for the universal church formally contradicts the dogma of Vatican I. The Roman Curia is the institutionalized participation of the Roman church in the Petrine ministry. It cannot be organized in a purely secular way according to the criteria of a multinational foundation. This seems to be the unresolved fundamental problem in the approach of Predicate Evangelium. It takes revenge when systematic theology is neglected in the elaboration of important papal documents, and instead of clear dogmatic principles, a combination of spiritual desiderata and worldly categories of power determines the basic hermeneutical approach. The Church as the universal sacrament of the salvation of the world is rooted in the Incarnation. We cannot, like the Protestants, tear the church apart into invisible community of grace, a communio, and a visible community of law, a societas. The visible community of faith is not a man-made religious organization, but the ecclesial sacramental body of Christ. See Lumen Gentium, paragraph 8. It serves in Martyria, Liturgia, and Dialkinia, the most intimate union of people with God and the unity of humanity. Therefore, it is always Christ himself who teaches, sanctifies, and pastorally or juridically teach, directs through the bishop. Neither pope and bishops, nor as in the Protestant and Catholic state church system, the secular authorities or a mixed body of laity and clergy. See the German Synodal Aberration, 
can lead the Church of God like a secular organization, be it in an authoritarian monocratic, be it in a synodal democratic form. By its sacramental nature, not only because of positive legal norms, the office of bishop can only be exercised collegially in communion with the whole episcopate cum et sub petro. Each bishop, by virtue of his consecration, shares in the total jurisdiction of the episcopate, when the pope, as head of the college, can also speak and act in the name of Christ for the whole church. Every bishop, by virtue of divine right, participates in the ecumenical council. The Pope, however, is not a super bishop or absolute sovereign of the church as if he shared in the omnipotence of God, but as bishop of the local church of Rome, he is the ever-present visible principle and foundation of unity in faith and communio ecclesiarium. Nor can the Pope confer any layman extra sacramentally, that is, in a formal legal act, the authority of jurisdiction in a diocese or in the Roman Curia, so that the bishops or priests act in his name. For bishops preside in God's stead over their flock, of which they are shepherds, as teachers in the instruction, as priests in sacred worship, as ministers in the liturgy. See Lumen Gentium, paragraph 20. Contrary cases in the history of the church and the papacy are not theological arguments, but only evidence of a deficient theology or the misuse of spiritual authority for secular purposes. The suppression of the congregation of cardinals as a partial assembly of the consistory of all cardinals, in favor, favor of the formal equality of all institutions of the Curia and the Holy See as bureaucratic administrative agencies called dicasteries, is taking its revenge. Certainly the dicastery for medial communications can be headed by a competent layman, but precisely not the congregation for the doctrine of the faith, the liturgy, the bishops, the clergy, etc., whose prefects, as clerics of the Roman Church, are sacramentally linked to the Bishop of Rome in his capacity as successor of St. Peter, in short, the Pope. Consequently, the sacramentality of the episcopate also means that the bishops are neither deputies nor delegates of the Pope. See Lumen Gentium, paragraph 27. They exercise the spiritual powers conferred on them by Christ in ordination in the name of Christ, not in the authority of the Pope, as the extreme papalism of today wants again. The deposition of a Pope or the moral pressure on him to resign voluntarily can only be justified before God as ultima ratio in view of the bonum ecclesia. What is necessary is a reflection on predicate evangelium, that's the document Francis just reformed the Curia with, in light of the binding teaching on the Church in the Dogmatic Constitution of Vatican II, Lumen Gentium. Notice that Mueller was making a purely Vatican II reform argument against the Francis centralization of power in the papacy, because frankly, that's what the document does. Remember, not only do the laity lack the sacramental grace from holy orders to effectively run a Vatican dicastery, I mean, the laity should not be governing over bishops. That's an inversion of the proper order of things. The vast majority of the laity will lack any sense whatsoever of the complexities of the religious and clerical state that are needed to run such organizations. So then what happens? They will rely on trusted curial officials to aid them, whether they know it or not, and that will put them under the direct influence of Francis's current crop of cardinals in senior positions, men who are all to a person of the same persuasion as Francis himself. Mueller is right to be annoyed, and maybe he'll eventually realize the problem here is Vatican II's spirit of change and revolution is actually to blame for this, since that the council opened the door to changing all sorts of teachings of the church and the relationships between bishops and the pope. That's just my thought on this mess. What do you think of all this? Let me know in the comments, please. Like and subscribe if you haven't. It really does help. Sh share this on social media if you can. That helps a lot as well. And as always, pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.